power lifters, they were into lifting heavy weights. One of them could deadlift about 700 pounds. The other one could bench press upwards of 300 pounds. And so every now and then I would go to the gym with them and my friend could bench press about 300 pounds and he was about my size. And he said, well, what do you think you can bench press? And I said, well, I know I'm not as strong as you, but maybe 250, 275. And so my first time ever bench pressing, I went to push up and it's like once I got the weight off of the rack, this wasn't going anywhere. And with all my might, as hard as I tried, I kept trying to push and it just slowly was going down towards my chest. And I learned that's why you have people spotting for you so they can help you get the weight back onto the rack and then push the weight down to what you needed at. And it's one of the few moments in my life where I just felt powerless. Like with all the strength that I had in my arms, there was nothing I could do to get that weight up off of the rack. As we look at Ephesians 3 today, we're going to see Paul's prayer. And we've known that he's wanting to get to this prayer in the book of Ephesians. He begins it in verse 1 of chapter 3. But as he begins to pray, he gets a little sidetracked. He gets on a rabbit trail and he wants to explain the mystery of the gospel to the Ephesians. How because of what Jesus has done in their lives, Jews and Gentiles are now brought together in the body of Christ as one body. There's no more Jews or Gentiles. There's no more slave or free, but there's one people in Christ, the church. And so he takes 13 verses to explain this to us. Last week, as we saw in verse 7 through verse 13, how Paul has been made a servant or a minister of this mystery. Today, we're going to finally get to the prayer. And we know that this is the prayer that Paul wants to pray because in verse 14 he says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father. And bowing your knees usually signifies some type of prayer before God. And this isn't the first time we've seen Paul pray in Ephesians. In chapter 1 he prays for the Ephesians as well, but he prays that they would grow in their knowledge of God. And what he shows us is that as we, as Christians, grow in our knowledge of God, we begin to understand what he's doing on the earth and what he's doing in our lives so that we can have what he calls an enlightenment, so that we can understand the mystery of our salvation and what he's doing in our lives and therefore glorify him as his church. What he's going to pray for in this prayer is spiritual strength, that the Ephesians would have not physical strength, but a spiritual strength, and he's going to show us the results of what that means in our lives. Now, the thing about strength is sometimes you don't know how much strength you need until you meet your own weakness. I didn't realize how much strength it would take for me to bench press 250, 275 pounds, and so I realized that I couldn't do it on my own, and I demonstrated my own weakness. And remember where Paul is praying from. from. He's praying from prison where he's in chains, and he's probably feeling his own weakness at this point. So he's praying to God for the Ephesians to be strengthened spiritually. And he's going to show us the results of that prayer. And what we want to see this morning is that as Christians, we should recognize our own weakness and then pray for spiritual strength. We want to recognize our own weakness and then pray for spiritual strength. It's not easy to recognize weakness. It's not easy for you to say, you know what, I'm not strong enough to do this on my own. We all have those moments where we try to move something, we try to position something else, we try to lift something, and we just can't do it on our own. And you know what happens when we try to do it on our own? 
we throw our back out, we have an injury, we end up looking foolish, we drop something. It's humbling to say, I need help. I need strength from somewhere else. But as Christians, what we have to realize is that in every aspect of life, we are weak. We're dependent on the Lord. We see this in Paul's description of his own ministry, right? In verses 7 through 13, he says, This gift of God's grace given to me is the fact that I can serve you. It's not something that he could do on his own. In verse 8, he says, I am the very least of all saints. Now, we normally think of Paul as this great Christian, right? As this person who's so godly and gifted and that has all this strength on his own, but he doesn't view himself that way. In fact, he says, I am the least of all saints. It goes against that idea. You know, Tim always talks about how he doesn't want to be behind Paul in heaven when it comes to getting our crowns from the Lord Jesus, because he's always obviously going to get a lot, but yet he didn't view himself that way. He saw himself as this weak person dependent on the Lord's strength. In fact, in verse 7, it says, This grace was given to me by the working of his power. So Paul has already shown us his own weakness. And now he's going to show us the power that we need from the Lord. And this is what he is going to pray for. So we're going to see three ways that Paul is praying here in this passage. And it's going to help us understand how we should pray as well. First of all, we see that Paul is praying, addressing the Father. We're going to see in verses 14 and 15 how Paul is addressing God the Father in his prayer. Look with me at verse 14. He says, For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. This again points us to the fact that he's praying. He uses the same phrase from verse 1, For this reason. Now what reason is he talking about? If you go all the way back to chapter 2, Paul's been talking about our salvation. In verses 1 through 10, we've been made alive in Christ. In verses 11 through 22, we've been reconciled. There's been peace made between us and God and between us and other people so that we're one in Christ. And because of that reality, because of the fact that we are now Christians and that we've been saved, we've been reconciled, Paul wants to pray for these Christians. He says, I bow my knees. In the Old Testament, people would signify that they're praying by getting on their knees and praying before God. And there's probably been some times where you've done that as well. As a kid, I remember we would get on our knees and we would fold our hands, close our eyes, and pray. Now, we don't necessarily always pray getting on our knees. I didn't see anybody during prayer get on their knees today. Sometimes it's hard to get back up when we get on our knees and pray before God. But it does signify what? That we're praying. Not only that, it shows humility. When you're down on the floor, it's a very humbling thing. It shows that we're beneath God. It shows a reverence for him, a worship. And so Paul's signifying that he's praying before God, pointing us to what he's going to be praying for. This also shows us that God is worthy of our reverence. Now, what we saw at the end of the sermon last week is in verse 12, that in Jesus Christ, we now have boldness and access before God, meaning we don't have to be afraid when we pray before God. You know, there's people in other religions that are afraid of the person they pray for. They're afraid that they're going to come down on them and attack them in some way, so they pray out of fear. And while we do have a respect, a fear of God, a reverence for him, we don't have to tremble in fear as believers. We have access before him, yet we should be humble. 
We should humbly pray before God, the Father, and he's going to show us why. Paul calls him here God the Father. This reminds us of his role in the Trinity. We know there's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And while they are one God and three distinct persons, they have differences, right? We've seen in Ephesians, God the Father is the architect of the world. He created everything. He created salvation. He created all the angels. He created everything that we see here in heaven and on earth. But Jesus Christ died for our sins. He made a way for us to get to God. The Holy Spirit then is our comforter. He encourages us. And so the members of the Trinity work in different ways. What do we see about God the Father here? We see, first of all, that he's the father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Paul is going to point us to the naming aspect of God. He's the one who gives us our names. Now, I don't know what you think about your name today. Maybe you've always liked the name you've been given. Maybe you've not liked the name you've been given. My parents gave me the name Lance, and they wanted to make sure that no one could short my name to have a nickname come from that. Now, what they didn't realize is they can add to it and have a lot of nicknames that come from adding things to my name. So Lancer, Lancelot, Lance the Dance. So I don't think they thought through that when I was a kid, but I've always liked my name. Some people don't like their name, so they change it. They have a nickname. What I've noticed, though, about nicknames, if you have to come up with it yourself, it usually doesn't stick. Usually a nickname is given to you by someone. It's not something you can give yourself. I've always thought if my dogs could name themselves, it wouldn't be Mac or Pepper. They'd be the destroyer, the, you know, the one who you know, bites your heels or something like that. They wouldn't name these little poofy nicknames that we come up with for dogs. If you name something, it means that you have some kind of control over that, right? Now, our parents don't have control as we grow up, but they do have the right when we're born to name their child. Now, if you know parents who have named their children and you say, okay, what's your baby's name? And they tell you, sometimes you just scratch your head and say, okay, that's an interesting name. Or I've never heard a name quite like that before. I remember when I got Mac, I knew I wanted to name him probably a different name than what his name would be. But I didn't know what it was until I picked him up and they said, well, this is Gerald. And I looked at that dog, and if you know a Gerald, I am sure that's a great name. But I looked at him, and I said, I'm going to name you something different, buddy. <laughs> like, we're going to come up with a different name. So I named him Mac. Half of his name comes from John MacArthur. The other half of his name comes from Khalil Mac, who is a linebacker for the Bears, who has since been traded. So that's where his name comes from. But when I named him, I had to get him used to that idea that he's not Gerald anymore. He's Mac, and he needed to come for Mac and obey for Mac and... Sometimes I think he still doesn't quite obey when I call his name out in the house, but you get the idea. When you name someone, it shows that authority that you have over that person. In verse 15, what we see here is God is the one who names. He gives names to all people. He named Adam and Eve. And we see something interesting about names when we go back to Genesis chapter 1. When, Adam, when God created Adam and Eve in the garden. In verse 26, God says to Adam, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, over the, all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So what does God do? He created Adam and he said, You're going to have dominion over the earth. 
Now, that doesn't mean that he can abuse the earth. He's a steward of God over the earth. But he's the one who has authority. He's the one who has control over things on earth. And then what does God tell Adam and Eve to do? To name the creatures of the earth. Now, they didn't know English back then, so they didn't name them exactly what our names are for things today. But all the names of the animals go back to Adam. What does that show us? This dominion, this idea of authority that Adam had over the earth. But yet, what do we see here? God is the one who names. He not only gives names, but he changes names. We see this throughout Scripture. Abram becomes what? Abraham. Sarai becomes Sarah. Jacob becomes Israel. And people's names are changed throughout the Old Testament, and they're given to people. He also tells parents, hey, you're going to name your child John. You're going to name your child Jesus. What does that show us about God? He's the one who gives names. And names in Scripture are important. They're not just about, well, what do I think rhymes with the last name? Names in Scripture show us something about that person. You often read in Scripture, this name means such and such. Micah in Scripture means who is like Yahweh, who is like God. Names often have significant meanings in Scripture. But what do we see? All the names go back to who? God. He's the one who names names. And it says of all the families of the earth, but not only just the earth, but it says in heaven and on the earth. They say, now, are there families in heaven? We know that angels, we're not sure exactly if they can be married. Jesus seems to tell us that angels probably aren't married, but we don't really know for, we won't know for sure until we're in heaven. I think a better way we could think about families there is like clans or groups. And we know in heaven, there are different classifications of angels. There's seraphim, there's cherubim, and he's the one who gives them their names. We know they have names as well even though we don't know many of their names here just as humans. But that doesn't, he's not just talking about names just to talk about names. He's showing us that God has dominion over things on the earth and over things in heaven, and he is the father of all. So when we pray to God the Father, we're not just praying to some mystic being that doesn't have any power. We're praying to the one who has control over all things in heaven and on earth. And this affects the way that we pray to God. This should cause us to pray to him. Now, as people here in the 21st century, there's not a lot of us who pray to idols. I don't think you're going to go home and pray to some little idol that you have in your house. But it should cause us to want to pray to the living God of the universe. Sometimes we don't turn to God in prayer like we should. Sometimes we turn to other people or other things to try to find answers. Think about this. When's the last time something really bad happened in your life? A tragedy, something didn't turn out the way you wanted it to, some kind of crisis in your life. What's the first thing that you did? For a lot of us is we called somebody. We talked to them. And that's not necessarily wrong. But prayer is not often our first thing that we go to. It's not the first. God is not the first person that we call on when we're in trouble Prayer often becomes what? Our last resort. We've called other people, we've tried other things, and then we say, well, we might as well just pray about it. And that's not how it should be. I love my wife, but if I ask her about a problem I'm having, she didn't create all things in heaven and on earth. She doesn't have the power to change things. She doesn't have, she's not the one who created everything. 
And so when we pray, we are calling upon the one who has power over all. What's interesting is we don't just look to people for answers. We also sometimes look to the Internet for answers as well. Now, yesterday, as we were taking something apart in our house, I had to Google something. And Google and YouTube are great tools that we can use. And half the things that I'm able to fix or put together in my house come from the Internet, right? We just have that luxury to be able to do those things. But you know what's really interesting? As we look at the Internet, what's interesting about what some of the top questions we find on Google, we find questions like, what is the meaning of life? Why am I unhappy? Where will I go when I die? And you think, why is a person asking Google that? Why are they asking the internet that? It's because they don't know God. And they don't have a relationship with God, who's the father of all. He's the one, as we've seen in Ephesians, he knows all the secrets. He reveals all the mysteries. And yet, there's something about humans who don't know God that they refuse to acknowledge him as creator. They refuse to say he's the one who has all the answers. Therefore, they refuse to pray. Think about how foolish we look asking a computer the life's biggest questions when we could pray and ask the Lord for guidance and direction. We'll talk about more of that later. Secondly, we look at what Paul's praying for. He's praying, asking for spiritual strength. Pray asking for spiritual strength. We're going to talk about what he means by this in verses 16 through 19. This is the content of his prayer. This is the request that he's asking for. We're going to see some of the reasons why. Look at verse 16 with me. He says that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. Let's look at the heart of that sentence, which is he's praying for you to be strengthened. This is the idea of strengthening something because of exercise over time. It's not just an immediate strengthening. People who are strong, who have great physical strength, a lot of times they're not just born that way. Sometimes they are, but a lot of times they've had to put in work to try to gain that strength over time. And they lift weights and then they push themselves a little more and they lift even more and they have the right rest and nutrients that they need to be able to lift heavy objects like they need to. This is that idea that you're strengthened over a period of time. Then it says strengthen with power. Power is the capacity for strength. It's the capacity to be able to do something. He's praying for strength, but it's not just physical strength. We're going to see that it is a spiritual strength. And we'll talk about what that means in a moment. Look at where it comes from at the beginning of verse 16. It says, according to the riches of his glory. We've seen throughout the book of Ephesians that God has spiritual riches. And they're immeasurable. You can't count them. It's like you look at your bank account. They can't even measure how much money you have. Now, I don't know anybody here that has that necessarily, but there's just no way that they could fathom how much money you have in your account. That's the riches of God's glory. It's immeasurable. So we know that God has it. We know that he has the power to give to us. And here, Paul is just asking for it. We see that he's granting us this strength. It's God giving it to us. It's not something we automatically have. He's praying for it. He's praying that God would give it to these believers. Notice how he's given it to us through his spirits. As Christians, we now don't only have just ourselves. We have the spirit of God living in us who is convicting us of sin, encouraging us, helping us understand God's word, helping us to walk 
in the spirit. Then notice that final phrase that says, in your inner being, you've got the outer man, which is the physical man, and then the inner man, which is your inner spiritual being. You ever heard parents talk about, well, I know that maybe physically my son can't, isn't great at basketball or he's not great at soccer, but he's got a good heart, right? What are they talking about? Your inner person, your inner being. And he's praying for strength, not outwardly, but inwardly, spiritually. And it's focused—it's showing us that God's focused not so much on outward things, but mainly on inward things. We know that man looks on the outward appearance. The Lord looks on the heart. And as Paul is praying for spiritual strength, we ask the question, why? Of all the things that Paul could pray for, why does he not pray that he would be released from prison? Why does he not pray for other things that we might think he would most naturally pray about? Look at verse 17 and we see the result of this. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. The first result of this prayer for spiritual strength is Christ to dwell in your heart. Now you say, wait a second, wait a second. I'm already a Christian. Christ already dwells in my heart. Why would I need him to dwell in there again? What Paul, what Paul uses here for the word for dwell is not just like you're visiting. It's not just like you're renting an apartment, but you're moving in. You're settling down. You're occupying all of the space. Let me give you an example. When I moved in, when I first moved out of the house, I kind of had some different experiences of apartments and places to live. I lived in Virginia for about six months, and I lived in the pastor's guest room of his house. So in that house, I had what? A guest room. But I didn't put any pictures up. I didn't change anything. I didn't go in there and they didn't walk in and say, wait a second, you painted all the walls and you knocked out this wall here. And you know, why wouldn't I do that? Because it's his house. In fact, I tried to keep everything about the same because I wasn't even renting it from them. I just lived there while I was interning there. Then I moved out here and I moved to Greenwood and I rented an apartment. And you've got a little bit more freedom when you do that, right? You can hang stuff on the walls. But I, when I was single, had no pictures or anything whatsoever. So they were mainly blank. But I moved kitchen, you know, little kitchen appliances in. And I put plates and silverware away, things like that. You move in. But I still didn't own it, right? I still didn't change things. I didn't paint the walls, things like that. What's the difference between that and owning a house? Well, when you own a house, you can do what you want to it. And it may not look good, it may not be what you should do with it, but you can change that house in whatever way you want to. You can paint the walls, you can knock walls down, you may have some homeowners association laws and things like that, but within reason, you can do what you need to in that house. What Paul's saying here, it's not that Christ doesn't already dwell in our heart, but it's that he wants Christ to dwell even more fully so that our lives are being changed. As Christians, we have Christ dwelling in us, but sometimes we still struggle with sin. Sometimes we still struggle with things that are not according to Christ's liking. We don't walk in the way that Christ wants us to. So as we're being strengthened spiritually, one of the first results we see is that Christ even more so dwells in us. And as he lives inside us, things begin to change. Just like before I got married, I lived as a single person when my wife moved in. Things changed, and things changed for the better. Amen? Things were cleaner. Stuff had a spot. You had organization. Things were better when she moved in to my house. And in the same way, when Christ dwells in us, our lives begin to change. We begin to come, become more like Christ. 
Christ dwells in our hearts through faith. Again, it's this trust, this confidence that we have in God that begins in salvation, but that goes throughout the Christian life. Then look at that next phrase. We see another result here of this spiritual strengthening. So that you being rooted and grounded in love. What does it mean to be rooted or grounded in something? They're actually two different metaphors referring to the idea of us being in the love of God. If something is rooted, you're planting it. You're trying to get a tree or a plant to take roots. When something's rooted, it's hard to move it, right? If my dad goes and he likes to get these little trees and nurse them back to health and make them into these bigger trees. And so he'll find like a little, I think it's a little twig sometimes, and he'll go and plant it. And I'm always amazed at how he can get it to grow. I don't have that gift. I'm, I don't think I have a green thumb. I have like a black thumb or something. Everything that I've tried to grow dies. But for some reason with him, he's able to plant it and it will take roots. And when a tree takes root, it's hard to move. Have you ever tried to move a tree that has deep roots into the ground? Sometimes you have to get bigger machinery or equipment to try to move it because you can't do it on your own. Paul says when you're strengthened with this strength that comes from God, you begin to become rooted in love. What does that mean? It can't be moved. The love of God can't be moved in you, but it's taken root inside of who you are. Now that word grounded, sometimes we just think it means the same thing as rooted, but it's actually a building term. It refers to a foundation of something that a building is placed on. It's this foundation idea. So I used the illustration a couple weeks ago when we talked about the foundation of like a Jenga tower that kids are playing with. You set up all the blocks, right? And they're all nice and straight. And what do kids do? They take the bottom pieces off. You say, if you take all the bottom pieces off, what's going to happen to the tower? It's going to fall down because you don't have that foundation for it. So what Paul's showing us is that the foundation of our lives should be what? The love of God. This isn't a love that we have for each other, even though that's important. This is the love of God that we are rooted and grounded in. What Paul has shown us in Ephesians is how God has loved us and the actions of his love, right? As we look through Ephesians and as we see these spiritual blessings that have been given to us, we see how God has loved us. He chose us. He predestined us. He bestowed on us spiritual blessings. He redeemed us. He sealed us. He made us alive. He raised us and seated us with Christ. He reconciled us. He reveals to us this mystery. All these verbs in Ephesians show us what? The love of God. And this love of God exists outside of us, meaning what? Does it matter if we recognize it or not? It's still there. He's still done these things. He still has provided a way of salvation for us. But yet as we're Christians, as we grow in our walk with God, as we grow in spiritual strength, what happens? We become rooted in love. That becomes part of who we are. We start to understand God's love. And what do we do in turn? We love other people. As you're rooted in God's love for you, you start loving others like you should. When God's love is the foundation of your life, when it becomes a foundation of who you are, the rest of who you are in life becomes fixed on God's love. This comes, this continues to happen as a result of what? The spiritual strength that comes from God. It's not something that we can do on our own. Then in verse 18, it says that you may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. 
as we continue to grow in our knowledge of God, as he continues to strengthen us, helping us to understand what he's done for us, we begin to see the dimensions of God's love. We see the vastness of it. It's not something that's small. It's something that can't be measured. And that's what Paul is doing here. All these different words for height and depth and length. We get a little confused by that. What he's showing us is the great dimensions of God's love and how big it is, how huge it is. Think about something you saw and you've just been taken away by the massive just size of what it is. A couple years ago, I went to the Ark Encounter, and it's supposed to be a replica of what Noah's Ark would be like. And what I learned, it's not just a normal boat, right? It is a big ark, and it just, when you look at it in person, it just takes your breath away. And they're trying to measure it according to what the biblical measurements were in Genesis. And you see it, and you're just like, wow. And you go through all the different levels of the ark, and you start realizing we have a great God who enabled Noah to build this boat. It's not like we, he had all the cranes and machinery that we had today. He had what they had during that time. And over a couple hundred years, he built that boat exactly the way it needed to be for them to be saved from the flood. It's one of the few times I can ever just remember seeing something that big and just being taken away, being starstruck by it, by the massive ramifications of it. And in the same way, Paul's not talking about us viewing something like a building. He says, when you see the love of God, when you're strengthened in this way, you are amazed at what you see. The depth, the height of it, the length of it, it cannot be measured. As Christians, when we're first saved, we have some kind of understanding of God's love, right? But I don't know about you, the more I grow in my relationship with God the more I begin to see the depths of his love for us. And why is that? Why well, I start to realize I was a sinner. I'd sinned against God. And I don't start thinking less of my sin. Sometimes I start thinking more of it. I start realizing how wretched and wicked I was before God saved me. And as we grow in Christ, we start seeing more of who God is, right? And his holiness and his love and his justice. And we're amazed at the love of God. And this spiritual strength helps us to understand the dimensions of God's love here. That's what Paul is trying to show them. Let's look at verse 19 as we see the final result, the final couple results of this spiritual strengthening. It says, And to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge. This idea of knowing here refers to a full grasping of something it's not just the head knowledge it's you're getting your arms around it you understand what it means the ramifications of it it says it surpasses knowledge you can't measure it it's beyond what we can comprehend so try to wrap your mind around this we're supposed to know the love of God but yet what Paul's saying is that it is what it's unknowable in our finite minds we just cannot comprehend it right it is too massive for us and what is the love of god that god would send his son jesus christ to die for sinners how can we understand the love of god who loves his son but yet would send that son to die in our place paul says as you pray we pray for spiritual strength we begin to understand it but yet it's still too complex it's too massive for us then that last phrase he says that you may be filled with all the fullness of god 
What does that mean that we're filled with the fullness of God? We're filled with the understanding of who God is, his fullness. And what I think it refers to here is not just his love, but his other attributes as well. As we grow in our knowledge of God, as we're strengthened to understand who he is, we don't just understand his love, we understand his wisdom, we understand his power, we understand his justice, we understand his wrath even, and we become what? Filled with the fullness of God and a knowledge of who he is. So as we pray, we ask the Lord for spiritual strength, that we would continue to grow in our walk with God. It's not this mystical type of strengthening. It's something that happens through the Spirit. It's plain for us in Scripture. It's talked about. And as we look at this, we're reminded of a couple of things. First of all, we are dependent on him. Any growth that takes place in our Christian life happens because God is working in us. As you look back on your life and you say, man, I've really grown. I've taken steps this year to become closer to God. The person we pray should not be ourselves. It should be God for working in us. I think we should also think about the things that Paul prays for. Paul had a lot of physical needs he could have prayed for. He was in prison, right? He was in chains. He was probably looking at dying at some point for his faith. But he doesn't focus on that stuff. And that doesn't mean it's wrong to pray for physical needs. We're always going to have physical needs that we should pray for. But do we pray for spiritual things? Do we pray that we would grow in our knowledge of God? Do we pray that we would be strengthened spiritually in the way that Paul describes here? And unfortunately, the answer is a lot of times we don't. We don't pray for these spiritual needs because sometimes we don't know what to pray for. And as we look at Paul's prayers in scriptures and his prayer, especially here, we see his heart for the Ephesian people. And not just that they would have what they need physically, but that they would grow spiritually as well in their relationship with God. Finally, let's look at Ephesians, chapter, Ephesians 3, 20 through 21. And we'll see finally that we should pray admiring the glory of God. As Paul talks about the fullness of God at the end of verse 19, he now turns and he begins praising God at the end of his prayer. He says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we can ask or think, according to the power at work within us. He turns to God and he's now going to give him praise. This God who is giving us a spiritual strength, who we want to have the fullness of God in us. He says, God can do abundantly above more than we could ever ask him. Think about the prayers, the things that you pray for in life. A lot of times, like I said, they're physical things, which isn't always bad. Sometimes we pray and we don't even ask God in prayer for something because we think, well, that's a big stretch. I don't know if God could even work in this situation. Maybe there's a physical need. Maybe there's something going on or spiritually you'd like to see someone saved. And you say, well, I don't even know if God could change that person. They're just too far gone. And what do we see here? That God works beyond what we could ever ask. Now, that doesn't mean that God's just going to give you whatever you want, right? You say, well, God can do more than I could think, so I'm going to ask him for a new car, because that's way more than I could ever think that I could have. Well, no. But when it, become, when it comes to his will, when it comes to asking for something according to his will, he can do way more than we could ever imagine or ask for. Last year when Alicia and I were engaged, my birthday was in March, and she began asking me, what kind of cake would you want? 
Now, my uncle's here. He's my mom's brother. And so I'm going to hope he doesn't go back and tell her this story. But growing up, we didn't have a lot of homemade cakes. And it wasn't that my mom's a bad baker, but she just liked to go to the store and did a lot of store-bought cakes. So when Alicia started asking me, what kind of cake do you want? I said, well, like a Reese's cake. And I thought, maybe she'll just get it from the store. And then one night she was talking to me and she said, oh, yeah, I'm baking your cake for you. And again, and I hope my uncle doesn't tell my mom this, whenever my mom baked a cake, it was always just interesting for us to see how things were going to turn out when she was done with it. And so as Alicia is baking this cake, I didn't really have a lot of knowledge of her baking skill and what she can do with that. She brought the cake when we were celebrating my birthday, and it was way more than I ever could have thought just growing up that a person could do with the cake. It had like a Reese's filling in the middle of the cake. It had homemade icing, all this stuff that came with it. It had Reese's peanut butter cups on the top of the cake. And we were already engaged by that point, but I thought this is way more than I ever could have imagined someone baking for me. My mom was over there and she was like, well, you know, those store-bought cakes were pretty good too. <laughs> and I thanked her for those, obviously. But sometimes just what you've grown up with affects what you think people are able to come up with. And just in our lives, as we look at just what we need physically and spiritually, sometimes we think, well, I don't know if I should ask for this. I don't know if God could do this. And it doesn't mean he's automatically going to do it. But God has the power to do anything. He has the capacity to do way more than we could ever think he could do. And so that's what Paul's showing us here. And notice what he says at the end of verse 20. He says, according to the power at work within us. The power that God is working in us is far more powerful than we could ever imagine. But he's not just focused on his power. He's focused on God. And in verse 21, he ends this prayer, and not just this prayer, but this whole first three chapters of Ephesians by giving glory to God. Because God is powerful, because God can do way more than we could ever imagine, he says, to him be glory. Now, what's interesting about the glory of God, it's both something that he is. We know that he is glorious. We can't really add to his glory but yet it's also something we're supposed to do. We're supposed to give glory to God. How does that work? I'm not God. You need to ask him. But we're supposed to glorify God who is already glorious, right? But Paul is praising God for his power here. He says, to him be glory in the church. And this shows us something about Ephesians, that Paul is focused on what? The church. And in chapters 1 through 3, he's focused on the doctrine of the church, of how Christ has saved us, how he's brought us together as this church. And in the next three chapters, he's going to show the church, this is how you should live. This is how you should act. This is how you should function together as the body of Christ. So he's praying that the Lord, that God would be glorified through his church and in Christ Jesus, through what Christ Jesus has done in our lives. And it says throughout all generations, forever and ever. This is unending. It never stops. When we read Revelation, and as we studied Revelation in Thursday Bible study, one of the things that I found interesting was just the unending nature of the praise of God. You read Revelation 4 and 5, and you see, man, this is a lot of worship. The elders, the four living creatures, the church, thousands and thousands of creatures are praising God and praising Jesus, and it's happening all the time. 
It never ends. And it shows us something about God. And what is that? That he is worthy of our worship. So as we pray, we address God the Father. Yes, we pray to him. And we ask him for both physical things and spiritual things. But in our prayers should also be that aspect of admiring who God is, of giving him glory, of worshiping him for what he has done and who he is. And this is how Paul chooses to close out the first three chapters of Ephesians. He says, he gives him this prayer and then he says, throughout all generations, forever and ever, amen. And that shows us this closing of the first three chapters, not that the book is done, but that the doctrine of the church of who we are has been expounded on and has been written about. And now in chapters four through six, he's going to show us how we should live. And as Christians, one of the things we should do as we think about who God is and what he's done for us, we should remember to pray. We should remember to pray to God each and every day, just as Paul does. And as we think about how we should pray, I want to leave us this morning with four different ways that we should pray in our Christian lives. First of all, we should pray boldly. We should pray boldly, not in ways that are embarrassing necessarily, but we should boldly pray to the Lord. Back in chapter 3, we saw that we have this access to the Father. We have this closeness with him, meaning we don't have to be afraid when we go to the Lord in prayer. We can't demand things from God. We can't demand that things are going to happen. We do have this confidence with the Lord to pray boldly. Secondly, we pray specifically. We ask for specific things, both physically and spiritually. If you notice Paul's requests, they're not requests. They're not just general. He's not just saying, oh, I hope the Ephesians do well. I hope they continue to be better Christians. He has specific prayer requests for each of them and ways that they can grow in their knowledge of God. In the same way, when we pray, we want to pray specifically, not just for ourselves, but for other people as well. That's why oftentimes when people give prayer requests, we want some clarification. We want to know what's going on so that we can pray specifically. Thirdly, pray expectingly. Kind of useless to pray when you don't think it's going to happen. When you say, well, Lord, I pray that this happens, but I just don't really think it's going to. No, Paul doesn't pray in a manner in which he says, I don't think it's going to work out. He prays expecting the Lord to work, expecting God to act. And then finally, pray worshipfully. Pray to God, worshiping him for who he is and what he has done Throughout Ephesians, we not only see how this doctrine affects us in our lives, we see how these things, these truths about us as Christians, how they should drive us towards worship and worshiping God for the things he's done in our lives. Amen? This brings to a close the first three chapters of Ephesians and the rich doctrine that we have in our identity with Christ. Let's pray. Father, we just praise you right now for what you've done in our lives, what you've done in our hearts, how you saved us, how you've called us from darkness, from sin, from being slaves to the world, the flesh, and the devil. We thank you for how you've worked in our lives, how you've given us this new life. Help us to pray as we should. Help us to pray not just for physical things, but for spiritual things as well. Help us to pray just expecting that you will work, Lord. 
then help us to worship you as we should in our lives. Even as we close this service this morning, I pray that you would help us to worship you in both spirit and in truth. And we ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.